This is Macro Horizons, episode 59, Zero Funds Game, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of March 9th. And as the world begins to work from home and bond trading competes with binge watching for bandwidth, we're reminded just because you're working from home doesn't mean you're working from home. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. To say that this last week was an exciting week in the Treasury market would be an understatement. We saw record low 10-year yields, record low 30-year yields. We saw the two-year get within striking distance of its all-time lows, although to be fair, there are another 30 basis points or so to go before twos challenge that 14 basis point record low. The curve did steepen out somewhat. We saw twos tens reach roughly 37 basis points before retracing somewhat. That is a very typical price action for a cutting cycle. So the market's response to that 50 basis points in rate cuts from the Fed made sense in a traditional context. We also saw the equity market sell off rather dramatically on several occasions. This really has been a story about equity volatility and its implications for financial conditions. We came into 2020 expecting the Fed to be especially sensitive to movements in the equity market, comparable to the Fed's behavior at the end of 2018. Now, that's exactly what we've seen. So every time that equity volatility spikes, that's simply a function of people buying put protection. People only bid up put protection when prices are falling, not rallying. As a result, that correlation with tighter financial conditions continues to drive the Fed. What was somewhat disconcerting was that on the day that Powell cut rates, the equity market sold off. One might have, certainly Powell should have, hope that equities would have rallied on the action from the central bank. The fact of the matter is the coordinated effort has been relatively limited thus far, and as a result, the market took it more as a signal that there are bigger issues facing the real economy. In fact, there's a pretty strong argument that up until the point governments started shutting down schools and the Fed got involved, the market was comparatively blasé about the whole coronavirus issue. It wasn't until we saw a proactive response on the part of policymakers that investors really started to wonder, oh, maybe there's something more significant going on and we should have even greater concern about the direction of the real economy. 
The most important question currently in the treasury market is how far can 10-year yields go before we hit the bottom? If that bottom is zero, how long before we get there? There's a fundamental longer-term argument that in a world with zero-term premium or potentially slightly negative-term premium, the reality that the Fed will most likely have to cut rates up until the effective lower bound, that the zero number in 10-year yields is not inconceivable. We would have pushed back on that notion two or three weeks ago, but given the severity of the price action that has been realized during the last week and how quickly investors have been willing to grab duration and push 10-year yields into the mid-60s, it's very clear that the probability of negative interest rates, not necessarily on the policy side, but in bills twos and threes, is material and an issue that should not be ignored. Surprise. Yeah, that was 50 basis points of a rate cut that the market wasn't expecting, at least not this soon. Point of fact, we actually were anticipating a 50 basis point reduction in the Fed's policy rate at the March 18th meeting. However, it came early. And in doing so, the Fed has backed itself into a very specific corner. The equity market did not respond the way that the Fed would have anticipated, i.e. stocks sold off when we saw that emergency rate cut. And as a result, we have seen investors quite eager to price in another 50 basis point move at the March 18th meeting. So that means that over the course of roughly two weeks, that we'll have an aggregate of at least 100 basis points in monetary stimulus and bringing the effective Fed funds rate to 59 basis points, presumably. John, what do you think the probability is that they actually try to do more than 50 basis points? As crazy as it sounds, I think there is a compelling logic. We right now have two truisms. One, the Fed's very close to the lower bound, and what they've said is when you're this close to the effective lower bound, you need to be actually more aggressive rather than less, aka don't save the bullets, try to get out ahead of any weakness, and re-anchor inflation expectations. The second truism is rate cuts are coming at least 50 basis points, at which case they're only 50 away from zero. So why not go a full 100? If you're going to end up at the zero lower bound anyways, try to be as aggressive as possible and try to do whatever you can on the monetary side to support aggregate demand. To be honest, this isn't a monetary problem. At best, the Fed is going to help with some of the second order wealth effects from a valuation standpoint. But I guess the question becomes, what's the argument against going a full 100 in the middle of March if you're going to end up doing that by the end of the year at the absolute latest? Look at the February payrolls number for one, and really all of the other domestic data we've been seeing for two. The fact that the Fed has acted so aggressively in a state of the world where the domestic economy is still holding up remarkably well. Was holding up remarkably well before the outbreak exploded. There was a non-farm payrolls report? Fair enough, to both points. However, say March 18th does come around and we do see the Fed lower rates by a full percent. Pretty quickly, the narrative is going to shift from, oh, thank goodness the Fed is stepping in to, oh my gosh, what does Powell know that we don't? The outlook must be getting really bad if we've seen 150 basis points of easing 
in only 15 days. And presumably at that point, the notion of bond buying and actual balance sheet expanding QE will come back on the table because once the Fed does cut to the effective lower bound, the next natural thing for market participants to worry about is how much of a QE program will we be seeing in 2020? Now, the Fed has laid the groundwork to change their monetary policy framework and recast the way the market expects them to react to inflation. But if we're at the effective lower bound, one could safely put that in the camp of too little, too late. One thing that must be deeply concerning for policy makers right now is inflation compensation. Five-year nominal yields are at an all-time record low, even lower than we saw when rates were at zero and there was a full-blown QE program going on, and five-year break-evens are as low as, call it, 1.1%. To the extent that signals an average of under 1% PCE inflation over the next five years, that's pricing not only a temporary Fed policy error, but the risk of a true secular stagnation where the Fed goes down to zero and is stuck there. You can see the market pricing and the probability of a longer period at zero in the just general structure of the curve. The fact that we are this low, this far out, and while we have seen some steepening, twos, tens, fives, thirties are a far cry from anything that we've seen going into or during prior recessionary periods. Well, and to your point, John, given the outright level of yields, it's going to be very hard to see twos, tens, steepen out beyond, call it, 65, 70 basis points. And that assumes that twos quickly rally back to their record lows of 14 basis points and tens don't follow suit in any meaningful way. Again, that second part being a big assumption because the rally has been characterized by a grab for duration, which has prevented the typical re-steepening of the curve. A question we've received several times over the course of the week has been, what's the absolute rock bottom level for 10-year yields? Uh. Well, I might glibly say zero, but even that's not true. So on some level, if we find ourselves in a situation where the Fed is at the effective lower bound, two-year yields are at five basis points, 10 basis points, the Fed is changing their framework to effectively signal being on hold or lower for much, much, much longer. There's nothing to say that the zero bound really applies to the outright level of yields, particularly not in the front end. Here's my logic. If you have a Fed that we know by and large is going to try to avoid dropping policy rates into negative territory, we can safely assume that the very front end of the curve to venture into negative rates would have to be playing for bond buying or be playing for the Fed to eventually give up the idea that the U.S. will never see negative policy rates. And even in a world where there are no negative policy rates in the U.S., I still think that you could see 10s trade negative, 5s trade negative. And hear me out on the logic for this. In that case, you'd be funding those positions at repo. Say we're back at the zero lower bound, I don't know, five basis points, 10 basis points, wherever GC's ending up. So you'd have the negative carry on the position if you buy a 10-year yield at, call it, negative 20, negative 25 basis points, whatever. Why would somebody enter into that negative carry position? Well, one, you still have the potential upside price action in response to a risk off. Treasuries act as an insurance product and ballast for a broader portfolio. The past few weeks are a great example of this. 
the world seems to be falling apart, and yet 30-year bonds are outperforming 499 of the companies in the S&P 500. So you have the ballast argument, the insurance product fair. The other one, and this might apply more for fives or some of the front end, is this is a U.S. dollar product. If you're a foreign investor who's trying to allocate or get exposure to U.S. dollars in a very safe version, you might actually be willing to absorb a negative carry profile or give up a few basis points in potential front-end yield in order to lock that in. Does that same logic apply to the boon market where we have seen negative yields for quite some time. At this point, now all of the major benchmarks in Germany are negative. Now, the ECB has a outright negative policy rate, which makes it somewhat different. However, there have been plenty of moments during which 10-year German yields were well below the ECB's target rate. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the logic still applies. Just in the euro area, you need to just drop the overall structure of rates. So you won't see 10-year treasuries at something like negative 70. That'll be a much harder ask given where policy rates would be in the U.S. But could you see below zero in a rock-bottom, scary state-of-the-world scenario? It's not impossible. Of course, one asterisk I'd just add here, it's not my base case to see this happen, But if someone's asking, where's the absolute rock bottom in 10-year yields? To be intellectually honest, it's not positive. Well, that's downright negative. So say that plays out, why wouldn't they just buy stocks or credit like the BOJ? Oh, it's been a long time since we've had a John Splanable moment. I think this is one. Mr. Hill? Thanks, Ben. And it really comes down to three wonderfully wonky words. The Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Act limits what the Fed can actually go out and buy. It's limited to sovereigns or things that are explicitly or implicitly backed by the U.S. government, a.k.a. Jenny's, Fannie, Freddie's. That's why they were able to do QE in the last round where they included agency MBS as well as agency debt. So therefore, one reason why they couldn't go out and buy ETFs or other equities outright is they just legally don't have the ability to. Now, there are other products that could theoretically be bought, a.k.a. some munis, but in general, the idea that the Fed is going to come out and directly underpin the equity market or corporate credit market will not happen at least as long as the Federal Reserve Act exists in its current form. Is it possible that Congress could amend that? Theoretically, but that really depends on whether you think Congress will change the Federal Reserve Act. Color me skeptical. This does lead to an interesting follow-up question, Ian. Will the Fed cease its MBS roll-off, which right now is rolling into treasuries, and re-enter the secondary agency MBS market? It's important to keep in mind that by purchasing mortgages, the Fed is creating a natural buyer for a product that continues to drop in rates. So in terms of the most direct transfer of lower rates to the end user or lower rates to the actual consumer, mortgage buying is very powerful. More to the point, when we see massive repricings in the outright level of treasury rates as we've experienced over the course of the last couple weeks, there tends to be a significant lag between lower treasury yields and lower mortgage rates. There are pipeline issues, there are processing issues. That's also part of the economy that doesn't respond as quickly as more efficient financial markets. So should Powell decide that he wants to hurry along the transfer of lower policy rates to the consumer, 
ending the MBS runoff makes a lot of sense. And Ian, just for my own edification, when you say substantial lag between the drop in 10-year yields and mortgage rates, are we talking five days, five weeks? Think months, not weeks, particularly when the repricing is going to be as dramatic as what we've just seen. What say you two to the possibility of some variation on a traditional QE program, say more focused in the front end, not specifically just bills, but maybe out to the two, three-year sector? You're saying a QE program that we're not, not calling not QE? Not QE? No, no, it's not QE. On a more serious note, it does make sense in an effort to return term premium to the market for the Fed to focus their initial purchases on the very front end. Whether or not that actually occurs will be a function of what the Fed's initial objective is. If what they want is to signal to investors that they're throwing every potential stimulative effort at this problem, I'd expect it to be spread evenly across the curve. If that doesn't result in at least some incremental steepening of the curve with the return of term premium, simply because of the inflationary impulse, then I would expect that the Fed might be more open to targeting one sector versus another. I'm also skeptical that the Fed wants term premium to come back into the market. 100% they want inflation compensation or expectations symmetric around 2% fair, but higher term premium just means higher mortgage rates, higher corporate borrowing costs. The whole purpose of QE is to compress term premium, compress risk premiums, and encourage economic activity. By focusing in the front end, you miss out on all those benefits. That said, one thing I would say an argument for focusing on the front end is it would mesh well with Brainerd's argument for yield curve control. By really focusing on that two to three year sector, say we're back at the zero lower bound, you could push twos and threes basically to zero. That further flattens the front end of the curve. The problem with that is what tenors are households and corporates most sensitive to? It's not twos and threes it's much more likely to be fives, tens, and thirties. So if the point is to lower borrowing costs for households and corporates, stimulate aggregate demand, you got to go further out the curve. And to the earlier point, you have to go into mortgages as well. One of the things that I think is happening right now that is driving the extreme price action we're seeing in tens and thirties, this is the first time we're approaching the end of an economic cycle and drift down to zero lower bound, where everyone expects a very high chance of a quantitative easing program to come. So the market's not just pricing cuts to zero, it's pricing the second trade, which is QE. And in the vein of large duration securities, a curve that we've gotten a surprising number of questions about is 10s, 30s. Ian, what have you made of the price action way out there? Well, we've seen a dramatic steepening of the 10s, 30s curve with a target of roughly 70 basis points. We haven't reached that yet. We could see it conceivably if the bid for the belly of the curve continues. However, the fundamental story is slightly less compelling because we are in an environment in which inflation has been very hard to generate. We have seen inflation expectations continue to ratchet lower. In Europe, as a great example, a five-year, five-year forward dropped below 100 basis points for the first time. Now, the Treasury curve is a different animal. However, the flight to quality nature and the buy tins at whatever cost mentality that has characterized the price action the last couple weeks has 
benefited that benchmark, i.e. tens, more than further out the curve. We have long characterized the 10-year as the benchmark of all benchmarks. And if someone needs exposure to the treasury market and you're in a true flight to quality scenario, it follows intuitively that the 10-year sector would be the primary beneficiary of the corona angst. So we've spent pretty much this entire time talking about how low rates can go, the bullish backing of the rally in treasuries, but what would it take to get tens back to a two-handle? A time machine? In the week ahead, the treasury market will have remarkably little new fundamental information on the economy, but it doesn't matter all that much because the treasury market hasn't been trading anything except for corona headlines for a very long time. We will obviously be watching the movements in risk assets, equities in particular. Any additional spike in volatility will help further support treasuries. Our initial target for 10-year yields in the event of a rally continues to be the low 60 basis point range. It's going to be very difficult to see 10-year yields push through 50 basis points or half a percent. A move of that magnitude is predicated on several things, not least of which being the Fed racing to the effective lower bound in terms of monetary policy and the market getting excited about the prospects of additional quantitative easing. That's not to say that such a situation won't play out. We're just doubtful that it will play out in the next five trading days. We continue to watch the shape of the curve. We did get some of the cyclical re-steepening that we have been playing for, but the outright level of yields will limit exactly how far twos tens is able to re-steepen. As it stands now, we think the upside in that curve is 60 to 70 basis points, 75 basis points, twos, tens, in an environment where two-year yields are at 10 basis points, implies the longer end of the curve isn't able to keep pace with the rally. To some extent, we do expect that the inflationary implications from an easier monetary policy stance globally should help steepen the curve, at least on the margin. However, given the insatiable appetite for duration exposure, in treasuries in particular, we struggle to imagine a situation where we have twos right up against the zero bound and tens anywhere north of 1%. As it stands, the futures market is still pricing in more than 100% odds that the Fed delivers another 50 basis point rate cut on the 18th of March. We are now into the pre-FOMC radio silence period, during which Fed speak has historically gone quiet. The willingness of the market to completely ignore the very strong non-farm payrolls print that we saw on Friday will serve as a further indication that the domestic economic data is not driving the outright level of yields in the U.S., and we've also slipped into this period where the pre-virus data is starting to run its course and come the next non-farm payrolls report, which will be information for March, we will be well in to the 
virus data. It's the post-virus data and assessing the damage that has been done to the real economy that will ultimately be essential in recasting the outright level of Treasury yields and expectations for monetary policy going forward. We've heard the question several times, if the Fed eases another 50 basis points for an aggregate of 100 basis points in policy accommodation within a two-week period, what is the probability that the Fed takes that back when this is all over? Once Powell delivers the amount of monetary policy accommodation the market is anticipating, it'll be very difficult for them to walk that back without risking tighter financial conditions. The transfer mechanism there still being a sell-off in equities, spike in equity vol, and therefore a tightening of financial conditions. We'll be watching this space very carefully as the week plays out, and with a special eye on the inflation series, core CPI in particular, although with an acknowledgement that there is really only downside risk, not that there's any skew to the economic data per se, but if it comes in stronger, as we saw with average hourly earnings on Friday, the market will ignore it. If it comes in weaker, the market will simply take that as justification to continue to expect the Fed to cut rates to zero. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as backup offices are unmothballed, we're taking suggestions for the most practical locations from which to continue delivering Macro Horizons. I hear St. Bart's is lovely this time of year. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. 
you should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.